Buongiorno and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy in international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're going to be heading to Latin America and talk more specifically about Brazil. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the newly elected president, Jair Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro was actually elected as the 38th president of Brazil late last year, winning about 55% of the vote from Fernando Haddad of the Brazilian Workers' Party, or Partido dos Trabalhadores, and sworn in, of course, in January of this year. His election caused quite a bit of a stir, to be honest, in the international community and in the media, labeling him as the Brazilian Trump for his hardline stances and misogynistic statements from the past. Sentiments in Brazil, however, show he is quite popular to help solve the woes of the country, both economically and socially. However, many both in Brazil and outside of the country fear that his policies will take Brazil down a crash course, which will have a heavy impact both on sustainable development for the future and long-term social impact for both the country and the region. With me to discuss Bolsonaro's Brazil and the status of sustainable development, I'm joined by key guests. We have focusing on political spectrum, is going to be Carlos Oliveira, who is a political journalist and PhD student in political science at the University of Brasilia. He has extensive experience in Brazilian politics, especially around the legislative process and political parties. As well as a journalist, he has actually worked since 2008 in the Institutional Brazilian Chamber of Deputies. We also have Dr. Ryan Lloyd, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of International Relations in the University of Sao Paulo. He was awarded his PhD in government in 2016 from the University of Texas, Austin, and has written in academic and non-academic settings on Brazilian politics, comparative political behavior, vote buying, and migration. And to discuss more about sustainable development in Brazil, we are joined by Amanda Lima, who is a political scientist in Brasilia working at the United Nations Development Agency, UNDP. With a master's in sustainable development from the University of Brasilia, her work focuses on realization of human and social environmental rights, as well as social innovation in Brazil. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Global Podcast. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's it's a pleasure. And before we really dive into the nitty gritty, as one says, I kind of want to take a step back and really look into what happened in the first place. How was it that 
Bolsonaro has risen to power in the first place. I understand that he has been in the in the political sphere for quite a long time and has now, let's say, risen to the occasion, uh, particularly in response to to certain grievances with the country. So, I guess let's let's start with Ryan. Uh, how how did this come to be? What is the background that that led to the rise of of Bolsonaro? So I'd say that the first thing that uh, Bolsonaro was able to do is he was able to start his campaign far in advance of other of other candidates because he has a very strong social media following. And so in an election in which the rejection of the status quo and a uh, and a sort of populist appeal was always going to be an advantage, he essentially started with a head he had a head start, essentially. He started his campaign essentially in 2016 during the impeachment of the previous president, uh, Jomo Hosefi. And so this was always going to, this was an advantage for him. And where he surprised a lot of people was people thought what he has said in the past and, and the controversy he has courted, especially during uh, the impeachment process, people thought he wasn't going to be able to break a certain ceiling of votes. He was going to be stuck with his, um, with his most ardent supporters and he wasn't going to be able to attract any other voters. But this turned out to be mistaken. And what Bolsonaro was able to do, essentially, was build a coalition of, I'd say, three main social forces. First, you have his most ardent supporters, people that like Bolsonaro, that like Bolsonaro because he is Bolsonaro, because he says certain things, because he doesn't uh, have a filter, and like his essentially his policies um, on the far right. And it's become a little bit more now of an identity thing. These people will probably stick with Bolsonaro no matter what he does. Uh, they like his talk about security, which is we need more guns to defend ourselves. A good uh, criminal is a dead criminal, and therefore we need to essentially um, give more weapons to everyone in the more American sense. Um, there's a lot of inspiration from the right in the U.S. on this. And so you, these people, a lot of them were already with him to some degree. Uh, from, say, 2017, 2018, um, the beginning of 2018 on, where he was able to sort of break that ceiling of, say, 20%. Some people were saying he won't break 30%. And it, actually, this, this bar kept moving <laughs> over time. Well, he won't break 20. Well, he won't break 30. Well, he won't get, well, he, well, he won't get to the second round. Well, he won't win. <laughs> and this just kept, well, he, he, he just kept on rolling. And a lot of this is because he was actually able to attract uh, concentrated support among other among other segments of the population. And I think the two main ones were uh, the evangelical community and what I'll generally call the anti the anti vote. So in the evangelical community, Bolsonaro was able to do something that no one else had been able to do since redemocratization essentially he was able to unite the community behind him and this was a concerted effort that he had been doing it for a long time he um he himself was actually raised catholic he is catholic but he's married to an evangelical and he was baptized in the river jordan if i'm not mistaken by a very famous evangelical pastor uh in 2016 if i'm not mistaken and this was an op- and this opened up some more avenues, and he was able to essentially unite a lot of very influential pastors with lots of fault fo- with lots of 
followers behind him. And in previous elections, the evangelical community has been carved up, been split among a few different candidates. For instance, in 2014, someone from Marina Silva, who is evangel- who, who has an evangelical background as well, some went for uh, Gilma, and some went for uh, Ayasunavis, uh, the, um, the center-right candidate. Before that, in 2010, Marina was able to capture some of the support. Um, Gioma was able, again, this was, uh, this was split several ways. Lula, when he was a candidate, when he was a president, when he was a candidate, uh, after he, when he went more towards the center, he generally had a very big evangelical following as well. But Bolsonaro was able to unite um, the vast majority of the evangelical vote behind him because of certain policy indications that he gave uh, and assurances that he would pursue a more socially conservative and morally conservative agenda. And the other, sec- the other part of the electorate that he was able to get behind him was what I would essentially call an anyone but pete crowd. And this was, I think, the most crucial. This is essentially what put him over 50% was the fact that people saw him as the, after a certain point, as the best bet for defeating the PT. And for these people, anyone running against the PT was going to be their preferred candidate. And since it was Bolsonaro, they voted for him. After a certain point, when he kept rising the polls and his numbers didn't fall off, this segment of the population, the useful vote, as you call it in, in, um, in Portuguese, ended up going towards Bolsonaro, and this took a little while longer. But this is that was the final ingredient missing, essentially, for a Bolsonaro victory. And he was able to do it um, relatively late in the campaign. Well, it, it, it's interesting that you're talking about that particular notion, especially regarding uh, anything but the PT, because of, and that's something I would wonder if we can we can discuss a bit more, because I think uh, one doesn't really understand how much basically grievances there were by a majority of the Brazilian population against the PT, where even from friends and 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 colleagues that I have both in Brazil and within the diaspora. Basically, we're saying the same thing. This is, well, we'll vote for anybody except for for Bolsonaro. Mm-hmm. I had one friend that literally said, we'll vote for a slice of cake I'm, instead mm-hmm. of PT, excuse me, not for Bolsonaro. That's, that's how they were serious. So I was wondering whether or not maybe something both yourself and Carlos can comment on regarding mm-hmm. where this anti-PT uh, grievance is coming from in order to enlighten the audience uh, mm-hmm. regarding this, because this may be something uh, they're not quite understanding. How is it that Fernando Adagi could not get that vote um, mm-hmm. and, and, and and that the PT was so uh, viled or, or looked mm-hmm. at with absolute disgust during this election? So I'd say that one, um, that there are two main components to this resentment of the PT. The first is that they were essentially branded as the party of corruption. And this is somewhat fair and somewhat unfair. Uh, a massive investigation uncovered widespread corruption across virtually every party in Brazil uh, in terms of how they funded their campaigns and in terms of some transactions between them, shall we say. And this permeated essentially most of the Brazilian government. Um, there were various state companies, for example, the, the state oil company, Petrobras, was essentially co-opted to be used for kickbacks to fund political campaigns. Now, since the PT was in power when this was discovered and did indeed have a very large 
stake in this corruption, they ended up getting essentially tarred with this with this label of being the party of corruption, the party of Lava Jato. Now, I said that's not quite fair because essentially every party is involved in this. And this is, had already been happening before the Pete got into power. And it is still happening now that the Pete is out of power. So essentially, the fact that the Pete alone, uh, for some people, has been branded the party of corruption is not entirely fair. But they were very deeply involved. The other component, I think, is that there's a social element to this, especially among the middle class and the upper middle class. And I think this is why, this partially explains why this tag of corruption stuck with them and maybe not so much with other parties, is that I think there's a bit of resentment to the redistributive, pol- the redistributive policies that the PT helped implement. They did benefit primarily the poor. And this isn't to say they only benefit the poor. In fact, the PT was very center-left, emphasis on center Everyone did pretty well during those years. Business was also booming. There's many benefits for for better off Brazilians. But in terms of relative gains, the middle class, the upper middle class had to essentially cede some ground to an emerging middle class. And this doesn't always sit well to for people that already had extensive privilege. Yeah. I, I think we could uh, add another component in this situation. I think it's the question of security. One of the most important yes. things related to the reason why we have a state is the security. And if the sensation of security is falling, people, I think, will look for some leader to recover it. I think it's an relevant variable to explain Mr. Bolsonaro, Mr. Bolsonaro rising. What do you think? I think... Carlos is, is absolutely correct here. Um, security was something completely ignored by Sedepete in the campaign. And I think this was a major oversight. They talked a lot about the impeachment. It was a coup. Uh, it's unjust. Lula should not be in jail. And they essentially ignored something that is a major concern for many Brazilians, which is security has gotten much more fragile. Uh, especially in places like Rio, where the federal government had to essentially take over the governance of the city because the local government could not deal with uh, the crime there and could not deal with the with essentially a war among criminal gangs and and uh, paramilitary groups. So this is also something, and, and it wasn't just Rio. There are other places that have had similar crises. Ceará in the northeast, for instance, also also went through this type of. Uh, of, of public security crisis. And, and so this is something in which Bolsonaro spent a lot of time talking about this. And the fact that he did, that he talked a lot about security, he talked a lot about corruption, gave him a major advantage, especially over a party that essentially didn't talk about those two major issues, or that being the PT. They essentially ignored those two major issues, and, and they were the most important issues in the election. Well, that's interesting in that sense, and 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 from what Carlos is saying, I, I do recall very much from many of the comments I was receiving from my colleagues uh, who are Brazilian or out in the diaspora that the security section was the one that really uh, pushed them to vote for Bolsonaro, and I can also see where the 
similarities on referring him to Trump are starting to come in with this whole arm them all kind of a deal as President Donald mm-hmm. Trump has mentioned multiple times as a response to the school shooting. But Carlos, I kind of want to take this now, the question over to you, because you have... You have pretty much seen the Brazilian government change for 10 plus years. I want to ask, since coming into power, and I know it's quite fresh, what have been the key changes he's made so far to Congress? And of course, beyond his his desire to move the embassy, uh, Brazilian embassy from Jerusalem, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, for example, what have you noticed that have been substantial? Oh, I think the most important thing related to the Congress and relation to in relationship with Mr. Bolsonaro is the question of the pension reformation, uh, pension reform. I think he will use all his political capital and his personal popularity to uh, to pass this law. I think Mr. Bolsonaro was elected without a coalition of parties to support him. Now he needs to construct a base of support at the Congress. So that agenda, for example, the change of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is not the very important thing right now. Uh, now he needs to construct a base of support at the Congress. Definitely, oh, definitely, it's not an easy task. Um, I think the cost will be right, very high, and he has a very unpopular, unpopular agenda. For example, the MPs and senators open to support him, uh, want to be a, a real part of it, but he didn't. Mr. Bolsonaro didn't hold conversations with the parties when choosing the ministers, for example, and the others members of the government. And it turned the things worse. The government, I think, wants to pass the, the pension reform until July. And currently, Mr. Bolsonaro has a relative, relative support to this agenda, especially from the market the media mainstreams and uh, a significant part of the Congress. Now, I think he will use all his power, that is the whole government machine machine, and his already falling popular support to pass the pension reform. The the other things, the other agendas related, for example, to uh, the foreign affairs, for example, I think it's just a another point to to change the attention for to the public to the journalists to the uh the, the the people interested in our government because the main agenda now is the reformation uh the pension um, system of uh allies sorry the the pension reformation i think it's the the, the first thing he is thinking the other agenda is, is secondary interesting in I, that sense uh, go ahead ryan I'd like to add, yeah I'd like to add something here. I think um Bolsonaro's sort of painted himself into a little bit of a corner now that he's been elected because this is a major part of his agenda, pension reform. But he's also got elected he also got elected on a platform of not doing politics like other people had been doing and essentially trying to stamp out corruption. The problem is that now that he is in the in the presidency in order to get something passed, especially something so important, so wide ranging, and that has the potential to be so unpopular, he has to choose between essentially buying votes <laughs> or not buying votes, not consulting everyone, and trying to go alone. If he goes alone, nothing will get passed. If he does 
sort of the same old politics and tries to essentially buy votes with, say, parliamentary, with, say, uh, amendments, uh, earmarking, we call in the U.S., giving pork, doing other things that are even, that are much more scandalous and, you know, under the table, uh, sort of payments under the table. Then he runs the risk of essentially not fulfilling a campaign promise, which is not, which is not engaging in corruption. And so he's tried to toe this line a little bit. He hasn't formed a coalition, essentially, in Congress. He's trying to go it alone with his own party. He hasn't given any ministerial post to many other parties, just say one other party. Uh, he's used the military for, uh, he's mined the military for a lot of his ministers. This is the problem for him. At what point does he decide, I need outside support? And when he decides that, is there a way he can do it without actually, without it looking really, really bad? So he's, right. yeah, he's in a quagmire, basically. Go ahead, Carlos. Because of the some problems his family is facing, for example, his son's denunciation uh, problems with um, supposed uh, corruption, uh, in my opinion, the Congress has taken the power, especially he's took the power, especially the the, the president, the, the speaker of the, the Chamber of Deputies. And now, in my opinion, even being our government system, a presidential one, the future of the Brazilian politics may be conducted by the parliament. I think the, the thing is very difficult for Mr. Bolsonaro right now to construct this base of government because now... Uh, we have a very fragmented Congress, and the cost is, is very high to get the, the support from uh, parliamentaries. There are many caucus, many parties, who knows who it, uh, of them will control the agenda. I think they, they are, uh, the, the, especially the, 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 the center uh, parties, are wanting to pass the pension reform. After that, I think he will need to negotiate um, proposal for proposal to gain some support in Congress, and in my opinion, I repeated it. I think the the Congress will conduct the agenda right now. So Congress conducting the agenda and taking it forward, and this is this is one of the key questions I'm starting to have for myself because at the end of the day, of course, Bolsonaro has harked how he wants to liberalize the economy, and many have said he's threatened to be able to basically have the Amazon become a full uh, a field day for anyone who wants to conduct a business and really starting to get into the uh, to the environment in that sense and and honing in on basically destroying a, a more sustainable development for the country. Um, bef you know, As we start to dive into the more sustainable development questions, I just have a question. Is there any political will from Bolsonaro based upon these current actions for sustainable development in the country? And and, and I can already hear the last Ryan's, but and if not, what about the Congress themselves? So I think one major indicator of Bolsonaro's intentions here are his choices as as ministers and his minister of the environment um, is let's say he's not necessarily sustainability minded. <laughs> uh, he's not exactly focused on that. He's essentially linked with with big business and land and land and landed elites, and it's this is this is not a man who is who is concerned about the environment. Um, that's his that was his pick. 
for um and, and of course this pick for uh minister of the environment has many other problems uh, he also put on his resume that he had a master's from Yale, which he doesn't <laughs> Uh, he also, and then he, his excuse is that he confused it with some small university in rural Brazil, which is a curious air to make. Um, so, but in addition to having some interesting, um, an interesting career, uh, an, an, an interesting approach to constructing a CV, he has no link with, say, environmental environmental movements, con- conservation movements and this is essentially a concession Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro made to certain supporters that are already uh, big landowners that ended up supporting his campaign and not supporting for example and and leaving uh, for example the uh, the campaign of Geraldo Alckmin who was another presidential candidate who was a little bit more catch-all at the beginning but he never really took off so I would say that Bolsonaro himself is a little bit more of a blank slate he doesn't have much in the way of opinions but uh, on the environment, but many people that support him that are important do have very strong opinions on this, and he's already signaled that he uh, is willing to make these concessions. Brian, Mr. Bolsonaro said he does not believe in the global warming. He endorses the argument from those who think it is just a left-wing ideological claiming. Mm-hmm. So, indeed, he's starting to really earn the title of the uh, Brazilian Trump the more we talk about this, and it's making it a little bit more saddening to hear. But I, I want to take now the direction towards well, sustainable... Yes, go ahead, Ryan. The, the, this this isn't by chance. This isn't something that came about. These these points of view that earned him that sort of Brazilian Trump moniker, these aren't things that he's doing, oh, he just naturally thinks that, and, oh, yeah, it just has to be like Trump. It's essentially he's copying Trump very consciously in, in this sort of in this sort of um, way. I, I, Carlos, I, I'm sure can back me up here, but he was in Congress for about more than 25 years. My guess is he never talked at all about global warming or lack thereof or the environment. I'm guessing he never got up and talked about that even once. Well, during yeah. all the time he was in Congress, never heard him talking about it. I, I think, I, I, for uh, for sure, he is talking about uh, global warming. This kind of subject after the uh, campaign, before the campaign, I, I never saw Mr. Bolsonaro telling something about the environment. His main concern is the security policies and the the questions related to corruption. Yeah, I I think it's worth noting that uh, in his government plan, right, uh, there's no mention of the word environment at all, but there are like a hundred mentions of the word God, for example. Besides its clear nationalist and punitivist tone, there is no mention about environment. So I think this is very clear that is no concern from uh, uh, his government. And, and, and this is why it's essentially yeah. costless for him to concede this point to his supporters. He doesn't care. His support, so, some of his key supporters care. Therefore, he's more than happy to give this to them. So there's a bit of so, so in, in a way with that last segment that kind of it's like a sprig, a little stream and ray of light of hope that maybe through outside actors one can kind of influence for the sake of sustainable development, but. 
holding on to that thought, I, I do want to direct the, the discussion out towards sustainable development because clearly um, th- th- there seems to be a threat in this case. And, and Amanda, I do want to take this question to you in regards to what is the threat of Bolsonaro's presidency in hindering Brazil's progress in not only achieving sustainable development goals, but actually causing real harm to Brazil, either environmentally or even socially for for greater social impact uh, within the country? Yeah, there's a few threats, but before talking about these probably setbacks on the sustainable development agenda, the Bolsonaro Bolsonaro's presidents could hinder. Uh, I think it's very important uh, to remember that the process of uh, consultation of the 2030 agenda began in Rio de Janeiro at the Rio Plus 20 right uh, conference in 2012. So this sustainable development agenda, it's, uh, uh, it's no exaggeration to say that uh, this has the Brazil's DNA, you know, and uh, the country plays a big role on pushing further for, for global progress on achieving every target. And as we've, ha- uh, we've already have seen this with the Millennium Development Goals, right? Uh, regarding the size of Brazil's population, um, the country was one of the, the which most contributed to the overall achievement of the MDG goal on poverty. Uh, uh, the country reduced extreme poverty not to half or one quarter, but to less than one seventh of the uh, 90s uh, level of poverty, from 25.5% to 3.5% uh, in 2012. So um, the world is looking for Brazil to act on this agenda. and. Like I have said, overall, Bolsonaro's governmental plan is extremely uncompromised with the environment. Uh, so it's it's been like uh, we are getting to know all these threats uh, as the president is the presidency is going to to government. We uh, we are on our way to the first hundred days of government. So. Um, there are still uh, decisions that we have to understand how it's been made. And to refuse to host COP25 uh, here in Brazil, right, it, it was a decision made before even the, the Bolsonaro uh, takes the, the, the presidency, before even uh, the beginning of the year, uh, 2019. Uh, this was a very clear message. Uh, that this new presidency has given not only on the climate agenda, but also on the sustainable development agenda. Um, uh, Of course, there is no way to achieve all the 17 global goals without pursuing to accomplish the Paris Agreement. And this was definitely a a, a bad sign, a sign that showed that even the advances we had uh, as certain are are now being put in questions. Uh, increasing the chance of significant, uh, significant setbacks. Uh, in the last years, uh, we had several institutional advances on promoting national SDG implementation in Brazil. Uh, in 2016, uh, it was formed the National Commission for SDG, uh, an, uh, an advisory and party body uh, aiming to internalize, to disseminate and confer transparency to the SDGs implementation process in the country. And it's worth noting that uh, this was 
the, the, the commission was uh, formed in the year that Brazil uh, introduced uh, its first uh, voluntary national review on SDG uh, in the high-level political forum. Uh, this was a, a very important moment to push the institutionalization of the National Commission and national debate overall about SDG implementation. Uh, during that period, we also had the mapping work of the Brazil's multi-annual multi plan, uh, 2016 and 2009, and its connection uh, with the SDG targets. Uh, this is a very important step into the nationalization of the SDGs. This work uh, shown that nine, uh, 19, uh, 95 percent of the SDG targets are covered by this multi-year plan. Uh, and this year, 2019, uh, Brazil is one of the countries that um, uh, have been compromised to show a new voluntary national review. And we expect this year to be no different from 2017, uh, as we, uh, we already see civil society, academia and private sector interested in engaging in SDG implementation. This time is different, not only because of the, the political scenario, but also because uh, this is the time the National Commission has a bigger role uh, with its 16 representatives in exercise and wary to accomplish one of the results of its action plan, that is to subside and produce the National Review. Uh, to be presented these years uh, in New York at the, the high-level political forum. Uh, we are very opt optimistic about the, the next month, uh, but we, uh, it, it remains to be seen how this government, uh, how this president will uh, prioritize the, these issues. And there's a few uncertainties ahead beyond 2019, and, and maybe this is uh, points of attention for us. A uh, few days later of the high-level political forum ends the mandate of the 16 representatives that collaborate with the National Commission and a new public selection must be made. But how will the selection proceed? Uh, this is a question that we still don't have any answers. Or the point of attention, uh, this National Commission uh, is also... A, a, there is the participation of technical government bodies, the Brazilian Institute of Geography and Statistics, IBGE, and the Institute of Applied Economic Research, IPEA. Uh, they are uh, permanent uh, members of the National Commission as technical advisory bodies, and we continue to contribute with the National Commission's work. Uh, but there will be space for them to make real cont contributions. Um, this is a government that, that is putting down to policy based on evidences. So, um, 2020, we are expecting a new census, uh, a new opportunity to refine our data about Brazil's population and about Bra Brazil's uh, tra uh, trajectory uh, towards sustainable development. And we've already seen Bolsonaro's ministries questioning the great number of questions of the survey. And that's not, that's other, not so great sign uh, of the compromise of this government with the transparency, with data disaggregation, so necessary to achieve the SDGs um, in 2030. 
this really makes us wonder about the high probabilities of the risks né, above mentioned becoming reality on the next few months. It, it, it's worried because Brazil has come a long way to assure a leadership uh, role when it comes to sustainable development. But this is maybe the new normal when it comes to the country's commitment with this agenda uh, for the next years. Yeah, it's quite interesting because from on one hand, you're telling me that Brazil, Brazil, you know, sustainable development and and commitment to the environment and all of that is quite ingrained in the country, uh, as is, you know, a great other cultural legacies. And suddenly, you know, the Bolsonaro and, and many of those who support him are saying, you know, who cares about the sustainable development? the environment, and all that jazz, it still seems to be progressing, at least the other actors and agencies still seem to be progressing it. However, it, it seems that the threats on Bolsonaro and, and, and his government's interests are starting to wane in. But I want to go back into the, to, to mentioning what Ryan indicated about how Bolsonaro seems to be, uh, to quote, and I'm not, I'm not one to quote George Bush, but to quote an old George Bush uh, uh, word, seems to be flip-flopping on the notion between, you know, I don't do sustainability, but suddenly, yeah, I'll listen yeah. to you if it's, uh, it's going to give me votes or it's going to give me support. So this is where I'm wondering, is there a role, clearly there's a role for... Uh, within the United States that American companies, though Donald Trump is very much adamant on on not, you know, committing towards uh, the, the climate change and sustainable development in that sense, but American uh, companies and NGOs are trying to be that agent for it. Is there a chance for either Brazilian companies or even foreign companies who are looking to promote a social impact or sustainable development within the country or NGOs or institutions looking to promote again, a sustainable development of the country, can they have a way to step up where the government is lacking? Of course, of course. Uh, there is a big role beyond this institutional space that I've talked about. I think that the, 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 the motto right now is act local. <laughs> uh, this may sound like a marketing catchphrase, but actually it's the best strategy right now to work with local governments, to work with communities, social-minded business and NGOs have a rich role, not only in mobilizing uh, population and advocate for sustainability issues, but they also have a big responsibility in implementation and monitoring the, the SDG implementation uh, and sustainable development uh, in its broad sense. Uh, like using new technologies for civil-generated uh, data uh, strengthening ecosystem of social innovation and collaboration, working with local governments and finding new solutions to old development problems. Uh, in SDG, we are not only talking about this big complex problem that we are now facing, like climate change, but we are talking about uh, problems that we are still uh, can overcome, like poverty, like uh, hunger. Uh, we, we, we've come a long way in, in, in the last years, but we still have much to do. Uh, and NGOs and, and social mind business are, uh, has to see uh, in every crisis we have a huge opportunity, right? So I, I, I think th this is the mindset that this kind of entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs 
has to have to to work here in Brazil. But we already have uh, an ecosystem uh, being in development, uh, being in development uh, to to work on these gaps, to work on these um, these areas where the government is lacking. Uh, Brazil is a very big country; it's uh, like a continent, and it's very different in. Uh, in, in its challenges and its solutions, sometimes the solution applied to uh, a, a, northern, a northern state is not adequate to a southern uh, a challenge. So we, we have to 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 give not only uh, opportunities, but to recognize that acting local is definitely the 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 great uh, strategy, the great asset that we can do right now to step up. Clearly. And could, yeah, go ahead. Yes, so, let me just point I, out. I think uh, his economic policy is clear. I, I, I mean, Mr. Bolsonaro's economic policy is clear. That is, it's pro-market. I think if the investors want to go by themselves without government support, it's very possible for uh, social minded business and NGOs acting in Brazil, but I think the field is not clear right now. I would wait um, to know if Mr. Bolsonaro will in fact have a durable support in Congress, and I think the economic policy is clear, repeating its pro-market. Interesting. So, so there, there is a, there is a chance for businesses, let's say, impact investors, social-minded businesses, or even NGOs, or 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 even uh, emerging uh, or even countries, for example, that want to invest themselves in somewhere that is extremely sustainable. There is that opportunity, but later on down the line, you feel that's where they could perhaps uh, take a role. But what about the potential of them engaging with policymakers and and help? influence or guide because clearly you've just mentioned weight but is there an opportunity where social minded and sincere and I, and I underline that put that in bold and in italics and double the font when I say that but sincere uh, businesses and NGOs who want to help uh, promote sustainable development is there an opportunity for them to work with policymakers and help influence on the importance of sustainable development for the country I, I could talk about a few cases that, that it comes to my mind when we, we talk about uh, these opportunities uh, because, uh, as I've said before, these local actions that, that I've accompanied and have been, that, uh, ha have been made a huge impact, not only local, but inspiring other actions in, in the country. Like Social Good Brazil is an uh, NGO uh, that not only, um, how can I say, uh, a capacitation for sustainability leaders of the future, but also is discussing the data movement for SDGs, how to use data scientists to, to uh, monitor and produce data to complement the SDG implementation here in Brazil. Uh, UN Global Compact uh, uh, is exercising a very huge role engaging business and companies to align to the SDGs. Uh, actually, th th this week, uh, the the Global Compact will be hosting uh, a very interesting forum, the SDG Investment Forum, that we'll discuss with business here in Brazil how to to make a, a impact investment because we are like uh, needing uh, seven trillion of investment per year to require to to achieve the all the goals. Wow. And there are many opportunities 
for for sustainable development, and especially in health, energy, food, agriculture, and in cities. Um, so we we are seeing the interest in in, in this uh, in this business, these big corporations to align themselves uh, uh, with the SDGs. Not only thinking about uh, um, social responsibilities, but uh, uh, really trying to understand. Uh, how its core business, how its core products and services can impact, can uh, can contribute uh, with the country's trajectory towards uh, sustainability. So w we have this, you know, like uh, spotlights that give us hope uh, to to understand that that this uh, sometimes uh, actions are restricted to one uh, to one niche. Uh, can um, be a, a good influence and a, and a good inspiration for other sectors and and others um, business and and, and NGOs uh, also to act uh, uh, to promote su sustainable development. You know. Um, also, it's worth mentioning that the the civil society here in Brazil is very engaged with the SG. We have. Uh, our working group for the 2030 agenda that since 2017 is, is uh, preparing a, a spotlight report of the civil society about uh, the, the sustainable development and, and is also worried about the, the, the space for uh, these NGOs and the social business to implement its, uh, its business here in Brazil align with SDGs. So I, I think that the, there is uh, these opportunities and uh, thinking also with working with local governments, we have like Vitor Brasil is a social innovation business that uh, brings capacitation to, to how do I say, um, I forgot the, the, the word in English. I guess in Portuguese. Uh, Gestores de políticas públicas. Uh, managers right? of, of, yeah. Managers, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, public managers. Uh, Vetor is, is a social business that, that, that brings new capacities to, to local governments uh, and trying to, to integrate new methodologies so as to, to, to transform the, the government into a more efficient and, uh, uh, institution so we we have seen this we, we've been seeing the, these opportunities uh, that can be a big um, accelerator towards sustainable development well, that's a, that's actually a really good a good way to, to 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 approach the end of this episode in that sense that there is still possibility and hope but i guess i kind of do want to still leave a bit of a as one would say a cliffhanger or a bit of a stay tuned statement uh, for the audience in this case I would like to hear at least from from each of you we, we clearly see that there is there are risks to sustainable development in Brazil uh, this and of course the the current political dynamics within the country make it quite you know to be continued esque what well, you know we one has to wait and see how things go but I would love to hear from each of you basically a response to, to this statement as a good way to, uh, to wrap it up do you feel that the future of Brazil under under the current uh, political dynamics will still include sustainable development or will the politics of Brazil allow for it as a priority going forward perhaps maybe sorting of, if you Amanda 
Whoa. <laughs> yes, I think there's always be space when we have uh, civil society, academia, private sector engaging in discussing sustainable development, not only not only discussing, but a acting uh, in, in sustainable development issues. Uh, so I think maybe with, uh, I, I don't know, challenge that the, the new government can bring, I think Brazil has come a long way uh, innovating in how to overcome this challenge. I'm optimistic about this, the reaction we can, uh, we can promote uh, in this scenario that sometimes may seem very grim, but it can bring uh, new opportunities for sustainable development. Interesting. And Carlos? Well, I think, think uh, if, you re if you are looking to the politicians, to the Congress, um, the environmental agenda will have um, um, a very uh, little space because if you think about the environmental caucus who was working in congress before this government we would we would have we had sorry a very large participation now it's fewer than it was before and i think if the people from the civil society and the politicians who are concerned about the environment the sustainability they want to gather the power the abilities their will to prepare something to negotiate in the congress in the congress with the government because when the government is treating for example the pension reformation he will be open to new votes new support and this support can be a kind of a saving for approving other laws, for example, environmental laws. I think it's a kind of uh, necessity of having many talkings, uh, united strength. I think it's the only way to have success in uh, political, in environmental policy He's here in Brazil right now. I think if the uh, people, if the society, uh, civil society, society engaged in police, environmental police, environmental policies, uh, want to walk alone, it will be very difficult to them. And Ryan, I'll give you the final word. I would. I'm not particularly optimistic. I think that sustainable development is not going to be a priority for Bolsonaro. In fact, it's the lack. Uh, the opposite is going to be um, is going to have. Um, let's say, <laughs> unsustainable development <laughs> is going to have much more a place in in his government. And I think that any sort of benefits that may be a more decentralized approach might confer are probably going to be offset by the other opportunities that lack of action are going is going to open up. Um, for instance, I. One thing that I think is going to be a major concern is the protection of indigenous lands. And uh, indi the indigenous communities tend to promote, let's say, a more sustainable type of development than, than maybe non than the surrounding communities that do not have land that's marked off for, for indigenous communities. And this is going to be a priority for at least some of Bolsonaro's supporters, is trying to relax the the strictness with which indigenous lands are marked off 
And I'll give one example. I, I think um, in Horaima, a border state, um, they're very concerned because they're the only state which is not connected to the national electricity grid. It's a little bit more complicated, but one thing you generally hear from the right there, and, and, and by the way, a Bolsonaro um, surrogate, let's say, uh, just got elected as governor there. And he's probably going to have Bolsonaro's ear to some degree. A common complaint you hear from them is that, oh, we could connect Horaima to the national electricity grid, but we can't because it runs through indigenous lands and they and therefore we can't build on it. And if we just relax these just a little bit, then we could connect Horaima to the national grid. Horaima wouldn't have to depend on Venezuelan energy, which is a big problem, by the way. And it seems to be this sort of panacea, essentially. Oh, we just need to relax this sort of policy. We can build on indi- on what's now indigenous lands. We just need to, you know, just let's... Re- we don't need to have all these protections in place. But so with Bolsonaro in office, these people are going to have a lot more space. And I think it's very probable that this, for example, um, is going... This sort of policy is going to go forward. And so while there might be some opportunities to engage on a local level and engage through channels outside the government, I think that that's going to be offset by all the other things that are going to be happening because of a lack of government policy or because or directly because of government policy. So I have to say I'm not so optimistic. Well, definitely the years of Bolsonaro's uh uh, let's say reign or episode within uh, Brazilian politics will determine what will happen. But it has been indeed enlightening, interesting, and provides. I say it with the other episodes, but I, I will never cease to say it because it's quite true. A substantial amount of food for thought, and really, it has been a pleasure having all three of you on board as we bring this topic to light and. Indeed, we shall see. We shall see whether Amanda's optimism or Ryan's optimism takes uh, <laughs> uh, takes lead on uh, on what happens for sustainability in Brazil. So, uh, gentlemen and Amanda, thank you very much for joining the Global Podcast. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechumglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of PAX on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!